there was no script to that whatsoever, y'all. <laughs> that was wonderful. And I, I didn't ask him to wear his granddaddy shirt. That's just what he wore. So I guess the last time he was gone, we got to show the picture, and now he had to show the shirt, and so it's all good. But uh, thank you, Brother Mike. Let me ask you a question. What are you looking forward to? <clears throat> You'll have to excuse me. I've been fighting a really, really bad cold, and I'm not coughing much, but I might choke a little bit. So just bear with me this morning. What are you looking forward to? entering the summertime. Uh, you might have a special vacation set up that you're going to go on. You might, uh, kids might be glad you're just out of school. Uh, you might have a, a, a birth in your family, a child on the way, whether it's a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew or something like that, something you're looking forward to. You know, looking forward is a real blessing of God. Because when we look forward as, as Christians, we're able to look back at what God has done, good and bad, and how he's worked all those things out. And by being able to look back and be thankful for those things, we can kind of look forward in anticipation of what he's going to do, even though we don't know everything that he's going to do. But there are some things in looking forward that we don't look forward to. Some things we don't really like. Take your Bible, your copy of the of God's Word and turn to 2 Samuel 23. <clears throat> and when you find that, if you would stand with me in honor of reading of God's Word, 2 Samuel 23, verses 20 and 21. And it says, Beniah, son of Jehoda, was the son of a brave man from Kabziel, a man of many exploits. Beniah killed two sons of Ariel of Moab, and he went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He also killed an Egyptian, a huge man. Even though the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Beniah went down to him with a club, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and then killed him with his own spear. Let's pray. Father, as we go deeper into your word this morning, I pray that you might teach us what it means to be people of faith, what it means to be people that look forward to the future. And that as your word is shared and the things that you've shown me over the last few weeks are, are placed out to our people, that we would all hear them and understand, God, the great and mighty things you want to do. Bless this hour together in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, what's so special about Benaiah? I would venture to say that probably 80% or better of you have never heard of Benaiah. <laughs> I heard of Benaiah about two years ago. Uh, there was a Bible study that was done on him called Chase the Lion. Um, and so it was a couple of years ago that I heard about him. There's not a whole lot written about him. I mean, here we see that he killed a couple of Moabite warriors. We see that he went into a pit and killed a lion. And we see that he killed a, a really big Egyptian with that guy's spear. So something to this guy because he had to take the spear away from him and then kill him. So that's a big deal. Um, I would venture to say that although we don't know all the details of each of these situations, they probably were not expected. I don't imagine Benaiah went looking for these things to happen. They were not planned. They were surprises. And the surprises in our lives often work the same way in that, number one, we don't see them coming. Um, number two, we don't know the outcome when they do come. And in all honesty, those are the kind of things that we, we often don't look forward to. In fact, those surprises that come up often cause us a pretty, pretty high level of uncertainty because we don't know what's going to happen. And that uncertainty keeps us from doing like Benaiah did and chasing the lion. 
Now, yeah, Benaiah was a lion chaser. If you read those scriptures carefully, it said he went into a pit. He didn't fall in it or stumble on it. He, went, he chose to go in a pit that had a lion in it. And so he chose to go there. For the sake of our discussion this morning, when I use the word lion chaser, I'm talking about a risk taker. He took a risk to go into a pit. But before we can move into what a risk taker looks like, we have to understand who the lion is. Now, the lion is the enemy. Our lion is Satan. And what does our, our enemy, Satan, do? Well, he does everything he can to cause us to live in fear, to be shackled by the uncertainties of life. Now, he does a whole lot more than that, but we know he does those two things for sure. Janice Russ was a 32-year-old shoemaker who lived in Eastern Europe back in the 1940s. And because of his pro-Nazi wartime activity, he feared for his life. So at 32 years old, he went into hiding in his sister's farmhouse. Now, how he pulled this off, I, won't, I don't comprehend. Because he was not found for 32 more years. 64 years old. For 32 years in his sister's farmhouse... They didn't even know he was there. His mother died during that time. Family gathered at the farmhouse, did not discover him. I don't know how he pulled it off. But for 32 years, he hid. For 32 years, Janice Roos lived in fear. Now, what does it mean to live in fear? Living in fear means minimizing risks. Janice Roos lived in fear. He thought he was minimizing his risk just by hiding. He actually felt safer hiding than he did out in the open. And you know, sometimes we're that way too, because we think that when we don't face our fears, we're safe. We, in a sense, hide inside of our fear. We get comfortable inside of our fear, which is amazing to me. The Bible goes on to tell us something a little bit more about our enemy, Satan. Because in 1 Peter 5, it says your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. <laughs> Interesting. And what does he seek to do? He's looking for someone to devour. In some, some, some translations say destroy, you know. Um, the next sentence of that particular passage says resist him standing firm in the faith. And I'm going to stop right there. Because the truth is, we don't like to take risks. We don't like to step out of our comfort zone. And to be real honest about it, Satan doesn't want us to do that either. He loves that we coast along in our contentment and, and happiness and everything's great. And I'm in my comfort zone and everything's good. Because when we stay right there, he doesn't have to worry about us. We're not a threat to Satan. Now, I'm not saying go find Satan and chase him and saying, come on, yeah, mm, I don't want to do that. He's, he's coming hard enough. I don't need to go look for him. He's, he does that on his own. But he'll stay away. He doesn't have to push very hard when we get at that level. When we coast and live in contentment, we're no threat. And the fact that serving is that serving God is, it's risky. To do what God wants us to do is risky. Or at least it feels risky because we don't know the outcome. We don't know the surprises that are going to happen in our lives. But guess who does? God does. God knows what's coming. He's already got it laid out. These verses tell us to resist 
Satan, resist the enemy, resist the devil, the roaring lion, standing firm in our faith. Now, why would it tell us to do that? Well, it's always been kind of interesting to me. I've grown up in the church, and I've always heard, you know, the Bible's got all the answers. And I've heard people, no, it don't. Well, yes, it does. Why would we resist the devil? Should we resist the devil and stand firm in our faith? Because James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee. That's why. Because when we do, he hits the road, Jack, as Uncle Si would say. (laughs) The, The truth is, we don't like those risks. But at the same time, God doesn't tempt us. He just sometimes will lead us, guide us, allow us to go into situations that are difficult, that are hard. But they're meant to test our faith so that on the backside of those situations, our faith is strengthened, but it's also proven to be genuine. The scary thing is at those very moments when Satan does his dead level best to get us to be scared. That's when he works the hardest. He wants us to be fearful. He tries to get us to doubt. He tries to get us to take matters into our own hands. Heck, he might even try to get us to just completely step away from God altogether for that that situation. Satan is so bold that he even tempted Jesus three times. He tempted God, you know. And what did Jesus do? He resisted. And what did Satan do? He fled. Okay, the Bible tells us what to do. We see it happen in Jesus, but we don't do it. Kind of interesting to me. So what, does, what we need to do is rather than live in our fear, we need to live in faith. And what does it mean to live a life by faith? It means that we're going to be risk takers. We're going to take the risk. We're going to step out. Behold the turtle. Now, I don't have a turtle up here, and this is such a good story. I just have to kind of read this one. The turtle makes progress only when he sticks his neck out. You ever seen a turtle going anywhere when he was inside his shell? Nope. His neck's out when he's going. These words by James Bryan Conant have special meaning for writer James Michener. In 1944, when Michener was nearly 40, he was serving in the U.S. Navy on a remote island in the South Pacific. To kill time, he decided he was going to write a book. He knew that the chances of anyone publishing it, the book, were practically nil, but he decided to stick his neck out and give it a try. Mishner decided that the book would be a collection of short stories in spite of friends telling him that nobody read short stories anymore. Even so, he kept going. He stuck his neck out and worked hard to write his book. The book was published, and it got a few reviews, but not many. But Orville Prescott, who was the book reviewer for the New York Times, reported that he liked the stories. And others decided that they liked the book too, and it wound up winning a Pulitzer Prize. Now, Kenneth McKenna, see, it gets better. (laughs) Kenneth McKenna, whose job it was to evaluate books for a Hollywood film company, tried to persuade that company to make a movie out of it. But the company decided that the book, quote, had no dramatic possibilities. So McKenna stuck his neck out and brought the book to the attention of composers, and you'll know this, Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. When Broadway cynics heard that Rodgers and Hammerstein were planning a musical called South Pacific, they burst out laughing and said, have you heard this screwy idea? The romantic lead's gonna be a guy past 50, an opera singer named Izzy Opinza. You know what happened to South Pacific. Well, many of you do. Y'all probably never even heard it. 
South Pacific is one of the greatest musicals ever written in the history of musicals. It's just that good. Mitchner said, you can understand now why I like people who stick their necks out. I also like what Les Brown once said. He said, shoot for the moon. Because even if you miss, you'll land in the stars. Pretty good place to be. A life of faith is characterized by risk-taking. And living that life of faith will lead us to our greatest victories when we take that risk. So, what does a lion chaser, what does a risk-taker look like? Number one, a person that leads this life understands and knows without a shadow of a doubt that the bigger God is, the smaller the lions become. Plain fact. There was a lady who lived out in the country one time. I grew up in a little community of about 300 people, probably about as many, well, there's probably more here than there were in the entire little community I grew up in. Well, this lady didn't have electricity, but she wanted electricity. So she called the electric company, and they came out, ran the lines, the line. I get that, lions, lions, and, so, and so, so she could have electricity. And so the, the electric company started watching the, the bill, and every month, she used one unit of electricity. So they're thinking that the meter's broke or something, so the technician goes back out to talk to her and, and get this worked out and, and ask her, so, well, ma'am, uh, are you using your electricity? And she's like, well, yeah. Was it doing what you wanted to? Oh, yeah. Well, might I ask, what, what are you using it for? She said, well, she said, every day when the sun goes down, I flip on the switch, light my kerosene lamp, and turn the switch off. This woman had no clue the power she had at her disposal. She could have lit up the whole house. She might not could have afforded it, but she could have lit up the whole house all day, all night, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. But she settled for a kerosene lamp. We're like that sometimes when it comes to following God. We settle for the kerosene lamp. We'd rather put our faith and trust in something with limited power than in the one with limitless power. We'd rather stay in our comfort zone than allow God to do something great. So the first thing we have to decide is, is who is our God? How big is our God? We, we say it. How great is our God? We sing it regularly. Do we really believe it? Let me tell you what the Bible says. This is cool. Deuteronomy says our God is perfect. Job says our God is infinite. Malachi says our God is unchanging. Jeremiah says our God is all-powerful and everywhere present. And 1 John says our God is all-knowing. You know what? There's no one, no one like our God. Our God in Isaiah is our Savior and our rock, and in Psalms is our deliverer, our strength, our redeemer, and our shield. There is no one like our God. Our God is the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one like our God. That's who we serve, but we're going to settle for the kerosene lamp. When we understand who our God is, we'll realize that it's time to stop telling God how big our lions are, which is what we always do when we have problems. And it's time to start telling our lions how big our God is. 
We need to let God be God. It's time to stop using the excuses. It's time to stop settling for the kerosene lamp. To be a lion chaser, we have to make a conscious decision to seek to honor God rather than ourselves. We have to decide if we're willing to take the risk to engage our faith in order to accomplish greater things than we can even imagine. We have to decide if we are going to move forward or we're going to continue to be satisfied with what we've always had. To be a lion chaser, we have to understand and hold fast to the, to the fact that when God gets bigger, the lions get smaller. The second description of a person who understands this is that a lion chaser understands also that playing it safe is also risky. You know, some things that appear to be really, really dangerous are, are much safer than their alternative. Airline travel, for example. I go to the airport, I get in a hollow metal tube with two big old huge engines on it, they rev it up and it's vibrating like it's about to shake apart, it zooms down the end, shoots me through the atmosphere and lands somewhere out there and that's safer than me getting in my six-cylinder vehicle and riding down the interstate. In fact, it's 30 times safer than me getting in my six-cylinder vehicle and riding down the interstate that never leaves the ground, hopefully. I don't ever plan for it to leave the ground, so. It's just kind of hard to understand how those things work. To be a lion chaser, we need to understand what the Bible says about playing it safe. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, if living a life of faith is living a life of risk, read it this way. And without risk-taking, it's impossible to please God. Doesn't sound quite as nice, does it? <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. We live by risk-taking, not by sight. That's a challenge to us. The truth is, there is no such thing as a risk-free faith. The famous missionary, Jim Elliott, you've heard his story. He and four others went to the Alka Indians in South America to share the love of Christ with them. The very first time they got there, the, the Indians killed all five of them. People of that time and people since have, been, have just thought what a waste that five young men were cut down in the prime of their lives. All the great things they could have done for God had they not died. Well... One of their sons wrote a few years later, God took five common young men of uncommon commitment and used them for his glory. And you might go, well, how in the world did he do that? Well, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story is, is a few years later, the wives of those very young men went back to the very same Indian tribe and everyone in the tribe came to know Christ. Everyone. God can do great things. Jim Elliott wrote in his diary, he is no fool who exchanges that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. To truly chase the lion, we need that uncommon commitment that those missionaries exhibited. Because in chasing the lion, we'll have to go somewhere. We may have to go somewhere we don't want to go. We may have to do some things we really don't want to do. To truly chase the lion, we will have to take the risk. We will have to get outside of our comfort zones. We will have to take the first step. And the first step is to face the fear. So what is the lion for us as a church as we move forward? What is the risk? Ours is not really unlike most any other church I've ever been involved in. You could say what our fear is in one word, and that fear is, got any clue? Ha ha ha. You got it. 
It's change. Thank you. That was really good. Change. That fear of change has caused us as a church to become unbalanced. Over the years, we've become unbalanced in how we're using our space for Sunday school and for worship. And that unbalancedness that we've had for so many years has caused another pretty significant obstacle for our path, and that is uh, a growth barrier. We, we literally are in a non-growing environment right now. As a matter of fact, we're probably even shrinking a little bit. And I heard our pastor say just a few weeks ago that if we get to the point where we're on a downhill slope of shrinking, you won't get it stopped. And so it has to stop. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. And he's exactly right. So what are we going to do to face our fear? What are we going to do to take the risk? We're going to rebalance. And that's done very simply. Four things. Number one, we've got five adult Sunday school classes that are currently meeting at 1045 that their teachers have led them to move to 915 beginning August the 18th. So we're not doing this next week because <laughs> a whole lot to go into this. Bob Cleveland, John Jones, Brad Benton, Steve Davis, and Robert and Beth Plummer. You five classes. Wow. Awesome is a word I say for God only. But buddy, that's close. You will never know the, the faith it takes, the risk it is to do something like that. I know that's a hard choice. I understand that. But I want the whole church to hear how proud I am as the minister of education, administrative pastor, whatever my title is. I don't really care too much, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, I'm proud of you. Because I know how big a step that is. But it's going to be great. The second thing we're going to do, in answer to the concern that parents have made that students worship together with their families, we're going to create a second student hour at 9.15 for Sunday school over there. So we're going to be busing all morning long, you know, to take care of them. But that's going to address that very need. So the kids, we're going to put them in rooms that have the energy levels that they currently have. We're trying to keep all that as close to the same as we can. Uh, there are some changes, but, but by and large, it's going to be pretty close. We're then going to reassign uh, some rooms for preschool children and adults. Right now, we have one floor over here that has children and adult Sunday school classes intermixed. Big safety issue. Real big safety issue. So in essence, what we're going to do in the North Wing is we're going to begin pulling classes down so that we have all preschoolers here, Mostly all children here, there'll be a few children on the third floor and adult classes on the third floor. It gives us great security, uses our space better, and uses all of our rooms better. And then the last thing we're going to do is we're going to move, we're seeking to move approximately 185 to 200 people from this hour to the next hour in worship. Thus balancing these two worships in numbers as well as in energy. And that's, some, that's a big hurdle for us here. And y'all know it. You've been here a lot longer than I have and you know what that does. As Brother Mike said, imagine you're a first-time guest and you come to 1045 and there's 200 people in here as opposed to 600 and what you feel. You see cars everywhere, but you don't see people. And so we've got to change that first impression. We just have to. And so by doing this, I believe that we will be able to keep both services about the same in numbers and in industry. Matter of fact, the numbers we have used, just so you know how detailed this process has been, Every number represents a person that comes two or more times a month to our church. We have a name beside every number. That's how detailed we've been. It's not a guess. It's a fact. And so we know pretty much what this is going to look like. Now, 
what's your role in this? Obviously, everybody here don't go to those five adult Sunday school classes. That's, that's a given. I understand that. Well, you have four, four things. I, I love what Brother Mike said. Every member, no, back up. Every staff member, every member, every attender, everybody, we all have a role. Here's the four points for your role. Number one, understand what church membership means. You've heard the old saying, uh, membership has its privileges. I think that's like an American Express commercial or something. In, <laughs> in this case, membership has its responsibilities. Membership is not a country club. Because I am a member of the body of Christ, I have a role to play. And that role is to give, to serve, to minister, to evangelize, to study, and to be a blessing to other people. Number two, strive to be a source of unity. The truth is, the pure fact of the matter is, there are no perfect churches with perfect staff or perfect people. It just does not happen. To be a source of unity means... I'm choosing not to be a source of gossip and dissension. Probably one of the hardest things in church work to deal with is how things go around well before any facts are out there and people make their mind up based on assumption rather than on fact. So choose not to gossip and not to dissension. We should each do all we can to preserve unity in the body for the sake of the gospel. Number three, avoid focusing on personal preference. We need to understand what the real reason we are here for. And Jesus told me why we're here. Two great commandments. Don's translation, love God, love people. It's just that simple. It's not about me, and it's not about my choices or my preferences. It's about me loving God and loving people. And whatever I have to do to make that happen is what I do. Number four, we need to lead our families to be good church members. We need to make a choice to pray together, to worship together, to serve together. And we need to ask Christ to help us fall deeper in love with him and deeper in love with his church because that's who he died for. And it's just that simple. Now, there are numerous, numerous positives to the plan that's going to be put in place. And I could give you a whole list. Let me just hit some highlights of it. Uh, We've already mentioned that worship services are going to be balanced. Sunday school is going to be balanced in that about 60% of our people are going to Sunday school one hour and 40% are going to Sunday school the other hour. And that's about as close as you could ever hope to get it. We will be able, we will, by readjusting our space, we will provide enough space between Sunday school and worship to go from where we're running about 883 in Sunday school right now in two hours, this doesn't even count the 8 o'clock hour, in two hours, 15 to 1,700 in Sunday school. In two hours. No changes to 8 o'clock at all. And it will increase the potential for our worship to go between 1,700 and 2,000. Not to even mention the things it does, as Brother Mike said, about what we can do missionally, as great as we are now, to imagine how much more we can do. And how do we do more? Because we've reached more people. More people serving God can do more things together than less people serving God. It's just the way it works. And so that's why we make those changes. We will answer the question of families being able to worship together. That is the number one thing I've heard in the year. We've been, because adult Sunday school teachers will tell you, we've been talking as an adult group for eight months on this. This is not brand new to them at all. We've been talking about what do we do? What can we do? So this is not new information to them at all. They've been praying and thinking and talking and trying to figure out what we can do. Our groups will be more effectively organized. I mean, we'll be keeping age groups together a lot better than we currently do. 
adult classes that are growing at this point but have small Sunday school space because we're able to move them to a new hour will open up big rooms to put them in so they can continue to grow. You know, that's a big deal. You know, the last thing we want to do is a growing class say, well, we can't do anything more. And I can promise you, there's been a whole bunch of classes because we need another room. And I'm like, I don't have another room. We have an adult class meeting in the library, folks. There's just no more room. We have to do something. We've used everything that's there. Um, every, the overall ministry from Sunday school and worship will be put in a growth posture. You remember hearing about we've kind of hit that growth barrier? You have to put yourself in a posture for growth to happen. Is growth going to happen? I'll be honest with you. I expect some growth, but it's not going to be automatic. It don't mean we're going to change all this and then we're just going to continue to sit and y'all come. I don't read y'all come anywhere in the Bible. It says go into all the world. And so those are just some of the things that we're going to be able to do. We're going to have great options between 915 and 1045 because there's going to be Sunday school for every age group. There's going to be equal amounts in the worship with the numbers and energy. So there's going to be options as people come. It would be wonderful if we could just simply move two or three classes. But as Brother Mike said, we tried that and it didn't work. The weekday folks already put their plan together to match this. I didn't give them a plan. I told them what I thought we needed to do, and they drew up their plan to make Monday through Friday work. That's how big this has happened. It's, I mean, I've been in tears through this to watch some key leaders that I just was wondering, is this gonna, are they going to buy into this? And they have on their own. It's just amazing. I tell you story after story after story of what God has done to show people what we need to do. I am really excited about the potential for this new plan. I believe that it puts us in line with the vision of our pastor. Last fall, I'd been here four months. I went to Brother Mike and I said, Brother Mike, I strongly believe that everything we do must line up with your vision for this church as the spiritual leader. It's just the way it works. What is your vision? Number one, Sunday school to be the fun fully functioning outreach arm of the church to do everything it can because it's not only where we reach people, it's where we connect people and where people grow. Number one. So this is based not on Don's thoughts, but on what our pastor says is the vision for the future. And I know that there's a lot of numbers thrown around. And, brother, and I agree with Brother Mike. He said, we're not doing this for numbers. Numbers are just a measuring tool. Numbers are people. People that God loves. People that Christ died for. And people that we have the opportunity to reach. And we can fulfill Matthew 28 by going. Because those people will come to know Christ. They'll come into the family of God. They'll come into this church family. They'll be people we can love and minister to. And that's what we're called to do. Love God and love people. So you might ask, what happened to Benaiah? Never heard of him. He took the step of faith. He went into a pit. What happened to him? We hear in three more places what happened to Benaiah. 2 Samuel 23 says, Benaiah was one of the most famous soldiers in Israel. A little while later in 1 Chronicles 11, it says he was the captain of King David's bodyguards. 1 Kings 2, he became the commander of Israel's army during Solomon's reign. Benaiah faced his fear. 
He stepped out in faith. He took the risk. And look what happened to the dude. Wow, that's big. Please, God. Please. Take, we'll take the risk. Do it. <coughs> when we follow Christ, when we take the risk, when we chase the lion, we'd never know where we'll end up. And honestly, that scenario could be a little bit scary, but at the same time, it's exciting. <coughs> because even though we don't know what's coming, he does. Even though we don't know what he wants to do, he does. Truly following God is the ultimate adventure. <coughs> I'm sorry. At the end of our lives, the defining moments are likely going to be the forks in the road where we chose certainty or uncertainty. If we wait for perfect conditions to do something, we never will. We've proven that over and over again. Let's just look at Beniah for a second. If Beniah had waited for perfect conditions, he would have never gone in the pit with the lion. Why, you might ask, <laughs> it was snowing. And we don't even want to go what two flakes of snow will do here in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, we've let two flakes of snow keep us from doing a whole lot less than going in a pit with a 600-pound wild animal to kill him. We will use the smallest excuses to do nothing. And I believe those excuses break God's heart because God knows what he wants to do. And he just wants us to say yes. So this morning's closing thought is given by Erwin McManus. The future is uncertain, but we need to move forward in it with confidence. There is a future to be created. There is a humanity to be liberated. We need to stop wasting our time and stop being afraid of what we cannot see and do not know. We need to move forward full of force because of what we do know. And what do we know? Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plan I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. I know the plans that I have. It's not about my plan. It's not about your plan. It's about God's plan. And his plan is great. We also know that we have a role in the plan. And we also know that God wants us to move forward in faith because he is much, much bigger than our lions. So be encouraged. We can move forward in faith. We can move forward full of force as we seek to be the people in the church that God has called us to be. And as Paula said, saying so beautifully during our prayer time, it will be worth it all. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for this time to be together. We are your people called by your name to do great and mighty things that you've called us to do, that you've set before us, and we confess today that we fail. We allow Satan to cause us to fear and halt us in our tracks. And though, God, we know the right words to say and we know the things we claim to believe, but we don't move forward. We just stay in our comfort and our contentedness and expect you to do great things. And Lord, today, that's not the way it works. So God, forgive us. Help us to be people who do not live by fear, but live by faith. 
that in the days ahead we would see great and mighty things far beyond anything we could ever hope or imagine. And on the other side of the risk, we look back and go, wow. What a blessing that God would use me to be a part of that. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for having a plan. Help us to fulfill that plan. You be honored and glorified, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Please excuse my coughing. I'm trying. It's, it's killing me right now. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you think, feel. I don't know. I know where I am. I'm just going to put it out there. I'm ready to go. I think God's ready to go. Are we going to go? I think it's time. You might have a need that you need to share with God. You might need to come and just spend some time with God and say, God, I've been a barrier. I've been one that's been a hindrance to my family or my friends or my church or someone else from moving forward. And I need to get that right. Maybe today through this you've realized that you don't even know the Lord. You don't even understand the concept of living by faith. And today might be the day for you. Whatever your need is, this time's for you. It's between you and God, not you and me. But I just want us to stand together. And um, we're going to sing. Matter of fact, Paula, you, you guys just sing. Let's stand together. This time for you, the staff will join me at the front. You do business with God.